Back in bold, Prior Lake, Minnesota, the hometown. I don't know what it is, but every time I come back to the States, I feel like absolute shit with the food. I come back here, I have to go to the bathroom all the time. I, my energy is lagging. Um, it's like an adjustment. And after about a week or two, I feel a little better, but it always happens. What is with this food in America? I mean, I think there's there's a few things. I think it depends on what you're eating. So when you come back, like, are you eating a much more processed diet? Are you I try not foods? to. No. I try to eat decent food, and I still feel crappy. Well, walk me through some of the stuff you eat. A Chipotle. Okay, well. <laughs> With the brown rice, though. The brown rice. It doesn't matter. The, everything else is still going to be fried in a lot of oil. It's typically going to be some sort of vegetable or palm oil or grapeseed oil or something like that. It's going to be much higher in omega-6. Okay. You're gonna feel more bloated. You're so essentially one of the big things with American food is we have a disproportionate ratio of omega six to omega three. Gotcha. So that's our so omega three being kind of your inf, anti-inflammatory, your omega six being your pro-inflammatory. Okay. We want to maintain a healthy balance of about two to one, four to one, omega six to omega three. Typical American is about fifteen to one, twenty to one. Why? Because of the foods we eat. Everything's fried in things that are much higher in omega-6 where typically in other countries that's not the case so chipotle is going to make you feel like that why is it I, I go straight to the conspiracy but why do you think this is i mean it's cheaper so it's cheaper okay. for companies to source palm oil it's cheaper for companies to source the canola oils things like that that's just been something that's always been cheaper it's hard it's obviously more expensive to use olive oil it's more expensive to use like organic sunflower oil but the problem is if you were to look at restaurants and how they cook a lot of the times, I'm not saying this is every restaurant, but a lot of things when they're cooked, there's a lot of oil involved. Oils that are high in omega-6s are going to cause inflammatory responses within the body, within your gut, things like that, which is going to cause that kind of bloated, constipated, yeah. kind of that... Just, it's that weird feeling. It's that weird feeling that your stomach just isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. But why is this though? I mean, because the last 60, 70 years, America has been like a really rich country. Mm -hmm. So why aren't we getting good food? Why are we still doing the cheap stuff and the processed and what else is in there? Steroids and all that crap. So The high fructose crap. I mean, that's one of the worst things. Yeah. So if you look at American food policy over time, well, I'll take a step back, even farther step back. So Western diets, so typically more of those that came from the UK, even some in Europe, what was it heavily based off of? It was heavily based off of sugar, fats for like butters and things like that, um, red meat, and grain. then our commodity crops. So your grain, your corn, um, things like that. And so you had a very limited um, kind of diversity of crops that we were eating. Um, and a lot of this was, if you look at the UK, well, there's not a lot of sunlight. There's not, there wasn't a lot of Kind of diversity in overall vegetable crops they obviously do have vegetable crops but the main diets had shifted to that point yep. so when you look at how then we started eating in the united states well that became the basis for everything but really starting in the early 1900s is when you started to see the rise of processed foods in the u.s but it wasn't until after world war ii with actually the arms race there's a free economics podcast episode on the rise of the supermarket and the rise of processed food, um, GMOs, antibiotics in our food system, steroids, all of that, that kind of boomed from the late 40s into the early 70s and 80s. Um, and so you started to see all of these food products that were then being developed and created specifically using synthetic materials. Why? Because it was cheaper. So the United States went through this whole kind of revolution of Food actually is the least, so the U.S. consumes the least per capita or spends the least per capita on food than any other country in the world. Sure. Yeah. So we spend about 6% of our annual income on food, whereas the other Western countries are about 9 to 12%. The developing world is much more. Um, and when we look at that from a policy perspective, why are we able to do that? Because we're using synthetic, cheaper um, cheaper ingredients. And so when it's manufactured in a lab, it can be mass produced. 
And then what happens when you're working with food ingredients in a lab is it's engineered to taste a certain way and to kind of force certain bodies or certain things in the body to react so you crave it even more. Okay. So we've got a whole period now of food engineering that's happening in the U.S. where it's being engineered to make us crave it more and more and more. So you kind of have these shifts that went along starting kind of in the 1700s, but really starting in the early 1900s, where we see this massive rise of engineering, preservatives, all of that. So You brought up uh, uh, GMOs, and I remember like maybe 10 years ago, I was on like 4chan and like the reddits and everyone mm -hmm. was talking about this is so bad for you this is like gmos like we need to go after masado mm -hmm. yeah this big evil yeah. company and also in the last like couple of years i've seen a total switch no gmos are good we're gonna get food mm -hmm. to everyone in this world like have they totally bought out the, mm -hmm. the marketing for it? it are gmos actually good for people or no so we have to think of, so there's so genetically modified organisms or genetically modified plants genetically modified food um, there's many different ways to think about it. So genetically modified, you could have genetically modified seeds. Well, it all depends on what your definition of genetically modified is because technically we have genetically modified plants our entire human life. Um, when we started domesticating plants, we started breeding certain species. We do it for disease resistance. We do it for things like that. Um, but part of the issue is when we're looking at genetically modified seeds, and I'm gonna talk about seeds and food, um, seeds is what happens is you take a company like Monsanto that genetically modifies a corn crop specifically designed to withstand a specific herbicide and insecticide, which then that herbicide and insecticide kills everything else but that specific crop. So what does that allow us to do? It uses, it allows us to broad spectrum spray insecticide, pesticide, knowing we're not gonna kill the cash crop, but we'll kill everything else. So that's a huge issue primarily because you've got insecticidal drift. So now even on organic products, you're seeing glyphosate, a lot of the herbicidal residue, just because of miles and miles of herbicidal insecticidal drift because of our broad spectrum spraying. Okay, now you're getting pretty deep on I me. Mean, yeah. I gotta. <laughs> okay, let's introduce you now. We got we, we hit him with a, a quick. Um, uh, what does it say when you when you start something off with a clickbait type deal? Why is America food so <laughs> shitty? Now we're gonna introduce you. So this is Matt. Now I find interesting about you, dude. You went to Princeton, yep. played uh, college ball. I think you're gonna go into politics. I don't know, like maybe CIA. Not quite sure. Then you started traveling, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you ended up back in your hometown, becoming like a. a you know, a hippie type farmer. What, yep. What's with this, this story here? Like why, how does it come to this? Yeah, so the first, I mean, I had grown up obviously in a family that appreciated cooking. I was aware of food. My mom has Crohn's disease, so we were very health conscious. Um, but in high school, I was diagnosed with the gluten intolerance and that was 13 years ago, which was before gluten-free became a fad thing. So it forced us to look at food in a different way than I think we would have otherwise. Um, but I had always dealt with kind of chronic inflammation, chronic things like that. And when I went gluten-free, that helped a lot. A lot of it went away. Um, I wasn't having the pre-diabetic symptoms I was having any, I was having prior. And just kind of a massive shift in not only just cognitive thinking, but performance as well for sports. And then in college, I was interning for the State Department over in, in France, in Paris, and I went over there, started at about 210, 215 pounds, left France, came back for the football season, I was 195. That was the lightest I had been since getting to college and playing, and I was eating more in France than I ever had before. Um, and so looking back on that, you actually start to look at the food quality in France and it was a lot better. So France, especially in Paris, like they had local markets everywhere. The French government prioritizes and subsidizes organic, smaller scale vegetable pro producers in France, whereas in the United States, we don't. So one of the things that was kind of the big- Hold on, is it yeah. like, like eight big food companies? Supply four. four big food, yeah. they supply everything. Yeah. 
So it's hard to even compete. Like a, you're, it's so hard to compete. You're a you're a farming guy now, Sweet Farm, right? Or uh, Spring Lake Farm. Spring Lake Farm. Yeah. So like you got to compete with the the big dogs. Well, we'll talk about kind of that see, competition. See. Um, but yeah, so I mean, if you look at kind of the practices and even the the access to healthier food options, it's much greater in Europe. Um, the food culture is a lot stronger. The appreciation for kind of your base ingredients are a lot stronger. So like if you go over to Europe and taste an actual tomato or taste an onion, generally it's going to have a lot more strength um, in flavor and taste and texture, just so much. And so it's just, it's funny when you start to look at it because when I was over there, we, the US, there was a joint conference between then Secretary of Agriculture, Vilsack, Who's now our who's now our the head of the USDA, um, and then the French um, Minister of Ag, he uh, they were having a conference talking specifically about GMOs. So the U.S. has been consistently trying to push GMOs in the European market. Why? Because corporate interests are very strong. So the U.S. is dictated U.S. agriculture policy is dictated by heavy corporate interests, um, being three big agriculture companies. Um, Monsanto kind of being the most popular. But in France, that's not how it's done. So you're not subsidizing the commodity crops like what you do in the US. And so there's a different kind of approach to agriculture. And I remember the department of, or the minister of ag uh, from France saying, we'll never let that happen while I'm minister of agriculture because you see what's happening in the United States. Everyone's fat. Well, <laughs> you see the food policy change to make it so that people are more likely to become fat. It's crazy. Um, I've never, anywhere else, like, oh, the Yucatan in Mexico, they're addicted to Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fat um, natives, you know? Yeah. But everywhere else in the world, I mean, Americans are fat. It's crazy. Yeah, and you, and you see how that kind of started with the rise of preservatives, the rise of engineered food and then you saw how corporate interests kind of became involved in policy and legislation and that's where we are today like it's hard to live in a city and access fresh food at a market more you, way expensive huh? it's way more expensive but you also have a farmer's market once a week so whereas in france i had access to a local market six days a week in paris in a major metropolitan city um, and these were farms that were just right on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and so when you think about access to healthy food, you start to look at it in the United States and you go, okay, so those that are in low income neighborhoods, well, they're food deserts. They don't even have access to farmer's markets. You're talking, we've completely destroyed any sort of access in this country to local food. Like even back here in Prior Lake, to go to a farm to source direct from, you would drive 15, 20 minutes out to a farm, which most people live within five to 10 minutes drive of a grocery store. So why, from a convenience perspective, are they going to go out to the farm? Um, so a lot of it is actually looking at the access. And what we've done in the U.S. is actually destroyed the ability for small scale farmers to purchase land so that we can actually provide access to healthy food without having to do over the top delivery costs, things like that, that destroy a farm's operating. Budget. On purpose, you think? No, I think it's just the rise of how we dev land develop in the United States. Like we prioritize things that are gonna make significant amounts of money from a real estate perspective. Um, and if you look at Prior Lake, so for those that aren't familiar, Prior Lake is a suburb of Minneapolis. And then right on the edge of Prior Lake starts to become country. Well, in the rural areas, the problem is, is you've got a ton of horse farms and a ton of farms that are just corn and soybean. Okay. Where we could feed all of Minneapolis with the literal two counties that we're in and near with just the land that we have. And that's the thing that we don't realize is that to feed an entire population of like Minneapolis is very doable. We just don't invest in it. Yeah, so I had some similar realizations to you with the, the food after uh, living in Denmark where I ate probably more food than I ever ate in the States and I went there at 220 pounds and mm -hmm. I came back 185 pounds. Yeah. And then also in Italy where food is like a religion yeah. and it's amazing sitting at the dinner table with the Italian family and go through everything and mm -hmm. how they make 
the pasta and and, and whatnot. Um, I get really into the conspiratorial thing. <laughs> I, I look at like the food pyramid. What I grew yeah. up on. I mean, it's total horseshit. It's well, changed so, a million times. So do you it's, know why? Yeah, tell me why. I mean, I, I think it's. I think they it, want it Americans. Was, to... It was driven by corporate. So. Okay. So the food pyramid, so how the food pyramid developed is post-World War II, this is kind of what the Freakonomics podcast talks about, which I encourage everyone to listen to, is when we were competing with the Soviet Union, um, our goal was to say we can produce whatever we want at every single time of the year. So for most people, they don't realize that chicken, like chicken meat used to be seasonal. Chickens start as chicks in the spring and they grow up and you broil them in the fall. Well, come into World War II, post-World War II, well, what did we create? We created factory farms for chickens, for beef, things like that. And so then you have these mass production of meat at a scale that we've never done before. Now take your commodity crops, so your corn, your wheat, your oats, things like that. Well, what did we do? We started overproducing corn. So what was our first way of trying to, so I'll take a step back. So overproduction of corn is one, we expanded the amount of acres that we were growing corn on. Okay. okay. So this was to feed a lot of the livestock and then also because we were able to export it for profit. Okay. Well, with scientific R&D through the USDA and other private programs, we not only increased the amount of acres we were growing, but the yield also increased by about three times. So not only did we increase the amount of acreage, we also tripled the amount we were getting from those acres. So what do we have? We had grain surpluses. Okay. Um, so the government sitting on a stockpile of grain, well, what do they have to do? They have to try to get rid of it and sell it. Put it into something, put it in the, oh, so, create the food pyramid, yeah. So the first attempt is we'll create the food pyramid where grains are at the bottom. Um, then you've got your meats, your dairies, and then your fruits and your vegetables and all of that, okay? Well, the food pyramid didn't really work all that well in kind of lowering the stock reserves of our grain because we were producing so much. So what did that lead to next? High fructose corn syrup. So high fructose corn syrup was developed as a way to kind of take away those reserves and get out of the stockpile. That wasn't enough. So what did we do? We created ethanol. So now we have corn into ethanol and because we're growing so much corn, there's now the ethanol requirement that you have to have in gasoline. Um, so we're in the U.S., we've got about 90 million acres worth of corn that we're growing. A single crop, 90 million acres on some of the most fertile land in the world. That's a shit ton. Yeah. Okay. And it's hard to think about. Okay, how, but take me back though. How does a dude that was going into politics, obviously you had the gluten sure. thing in high school. Um, you started traveling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you were looking to be, you know, Mr. Politician or, or whatever. Now you're a farmer. Like, why is this so important to you, this, this food? And, and where does mm -hmm. this, this love and passion and all this knowledge come from? So I, when I was living in D.C. doing, I was working for Deloitte doing government consulting there. And I was getting super into environmental sustainability um, and looking at it from, zero waste, recycling, water pollution, and human health, just even sustainability of human health. And I moved over and did a fellowship program with Princeton in Africa and lived in Tanzania for a year. And taking a step away from the US, living in a de developing country, you can really start to see Western policies that are pushed onto developing countries. So one of the big ones was plastic. So plastic bags, things like that, didn't exist in a lot of developing countries or weren't widely used until about 15 years ago. Um, same things with plastic water bottles. So there's all these different stories about Western companies coming in, saying they're gonna build wells, things get polluted, so then the local population has to rely on bottled water and it's just kind of a cycle that happens. So. One of the things that when we were there, our Tanzanian coworkers would laugh at our agriculture policies. The fact that we had chickens that were just pumped up on steroids. The fact that we were using all these insecticides and pesticides and things like that. 
Um, in Tanzania, you could walk along the street in the highway and you could literally find a fruit stand wherever you went. Um, you knew where your food was coming from. We would be able to hike through the mountains where the food was coming from. Um, but if you look at agriculture's impact, one, on climate change and the environment, and then two, on human health, most everything comes back to food. Um, so if you look at our polluted waterways, well, what's happening? We have an excess of nitrogen, phosphorus um, that's coming off, giant algal blooms that are destroying our fresh water. Um, Minnesota, we now have 40% of the waterways are actually critically endangered because they're so polluted. And we're the land of 10,000 lakes. That's a huge problem. Um, you look at it from a human health perspective. Well, if you have food that you're eating that is consistently high in sugar, fat, processed engineered ingredients, well, what do you see? You see rises in hypertension. You see rise in chronic illness because our body is pretty much controlled by our gut. It's controlled by our gut, by our gut and our respiratory rate, okay? And how we breathe. So our gut, if our gut's thrown off, we're more likely to have a higher risk of a chronic illness. That's why you're seeing the rise of autoimmune diseases, the rise of cancers. Depression. Depression. Anxiety. Yep. So 95% of serotonin is actually manufactured in your gut. That's crazy. Um, where depression, we think typically we're going to treat with a pill in the brain. Well, your gut's actually your primary motor for serotonin. It's in the second brain, right? Yes, yeah, it is. And so what happens is foods that are high in sugar, high in fat, typically those that are processed, it kicks off that serotonin response. So we get an initial high from all those foods and then we come crashing down. Well, what do we want to do? We want to keep craving it. So we eat more of it to get back to that high and we keep going like through this drug. cycle. It's pretty much a drug is what it is. And so what we've done is one, we've completely destroyed the environment from our agriculture, from our agriculture practices insecticides, herbicides, the insect, the insect population is collapsing. Um, you have topsoil that's being lost at a very high rate, which is a huge problem for nutrient density of food. Um, a typical head of broccoli now has about 40% less nutrient density than it did about 70 years ago. Um, primarily because we're just stripping the topsoil of nutrients. So you see that from an ecosystem perspective, you're seeing the polluted waterways and then you take that and you go, okay, well, if I have a polluted environment, we know that environment's going to affect human health, the air quality we breathe, the water we drink, all of that. Well, then the food I consume is going to affect my gut. So all the issues that we're starting to see in the United States, well, what does it come back to a lot of times? It's agricultural policies. Um, so to answer my question, this is how you thought you would make the biggest difference. Not so, just sitting in the politician's desk or whatever? Like actually well, yeah, it? I mean, it's, it's impossible at this point, especially in the United States, to drive actual policy change. Like you even see, like Vilsack under the Biden administration, who's, I don't really care what side of politics you sit on. What you see is that Vilsack is very much in the hands of the large corporate interest of agriculture, okay? Um, and so trying to get any sort of reform, well, you look at the... R&D budget of the USDA and the subsidies, where are they going? They're going to commodity crops. You only have 4% of all farms in the US certified organic. Um, and that's a huge problem. And when you look at it, it's like you've got 90 million acres that you're farming with uh, for one crop and you're spraying the crap out of it. Like we're just essentially polluting every single time with our ag policies. And that's not going to change until money gets out of it or until people start to realize that it's a problem. So you have to start changing buying behaviors. You have to start educating the population because there's so much BS out there in terms of what's healthy, what's not, all the fad diets that are coming out, all of what's being pushed to the educational system. Like it's just right now, it's, it's a perfect storm because there's too much information out there. So what do you resort back to? You resort back to what you grew up on. Well, what did you grow up on? Big ag. Like that's it. Meat, potatoes? It's meat and potatoes and your basic commodity crops rather than actually being able to think, oh, how can I change the way that I eat 
not only just the foods that I'm eating, but also where am I getting my food from and how am I sourcing it and how is it grown? So like getting to know the farms that you're getting produce from, like that's a huge one and supporting them and pushing that because that's how you start to eventually change some of the policies that are that we have today. But, but it is a lot hard for Americans. We like convenience. We don't want to be doing this research. That's and the problem. Spending all this time on, on where we're buying food and what we're eating. So let's give this audience <laughs> some practical advice. Okay, what diet works then? Like we hear, we hear 100 million different diets. <laughs> Obviously, not every diet works for every person, but how do you start figuring out, okay, what can work for me? What can make me, you know, my peak performance? So the first thing to know is that high fructose corn syrup is gotta go. Um, How bad is that for you? Like how bad? So what they found is that it actually destroys the lining in the gut, which when that happens, you're more prone to have gut issues. And so when you have gut issues, you're higher, you're more likely to have depression, anxiety. You're not able to absorb nutrients as well. So you actually become um, malnutrition. And so they've actually associated a lot of issues with high fructose corn syrup because of how it actually destroys the linings of the, of the intestinal walls in the stomach. So, and it's in everything. It's in ketchup, like every, it's in Heinz, I mean, barbecue sauces, sweet baby rays, it's in that. So let me ask you this though, if we've known <laughs> this for a while, when does it become a point of, um, ignorance or actual like they're trying to do this to the people well it's policy it's like we're trying or there's nothing restricting these things so another example is like the food coloring red number three it's banned in cosmetic problems because of its link to cancer it's not banned in food products okay so at some point it'll have to catch up i don't know when that'll happen but i think the biggest thing is knowing that like from a practical advice perspective, like just look at some of those base ingredients and go, if it has this, like just get rid of it. Name a name, high fructose. High fructose corn syrup, red number three. Um, and then there's some other ones that I can't pronounce. But, so, moment, but. but like you said about France though, France's government's like, hey, we're not gonna go down mm-hmm. this route at all. It sounds like they actually somewhat care about their population. But I mean, what about our government? Do they give one single F about our health? I mean, the obesity epidemic has gone through the roof. Is anything being done to to spread this awareness or do anything or no? From what I'm aware of and what's happening, not really, um, especially from a government perspective. It's not, I wouldn't say that it is on top of mind. Um, and I think some of it looks, you have to look at, History. So history plays a role in how governments develop. So France and Europe in general and much of the and actually most of the developing, actually all of the developing world, food cultures are much different than the U.S. We are heavy on capitalism. We're heavy on conveniences. We're heavy on exploiting. It's what we do. That's what the United States has done. Um, And so from a policy perspective, it's not going to address that because it goes against corporate interests. So at some point, that's going to have to get out of it. But we know that that's not going to happen anytime soon in the U.S. So you can't really rely on government or government policy to make those broad changes because it would cause a lot of uproar. Dude, it's so crazy seeing like uh, the gym class videos from the 1950s or yeah. all the I mean, they're doing all these pull ups. They all have uh no fat on them, these high school kids and stuff like that. And then nowadays it's just, I mean, you walk anywhere. I mean, the Walmart memes, you know, mm-hmm. like, well, people at Walmart, that's everywhere now. That Like 10 years ago, it was just, oh, you see these crazy people at Walmart. Now it's everywhere. I don't know. I, my brain goes to like, okay, they know it, they see it, and they keep pushing it. Like something is, is funky. Something is Well, weird. yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing. It's a policy that hasn't changed. It hasn't adapted. We know the research, but it just hasn't changed. So, I mean, some of it is looking at that, but that's where you look at it and it's like, unfortunately, you look at the Western style system of medicine, you look at the Western style system of food, specifically medicine, well, what's it good at? It's good at acute problems, okay? Well, with food, food starts to become chronic. Well, we don't deal well with chronic issues with Western style medicine. Um, 
And it kind of gets to the point of if you're living in the United States, you have to start taking it into your own hands, which is super hard. Like navigating it from ground zero is super, super hard. So how do you do it? Do you follow accounts like you on Instagram to figure out the knowledge or where do you start? Do you listen to Joe Rogan or what? No. Um, so the the first thing to start is I honestly would build a relationship with a local farm or find local farms near you. If you live in a city, there's oftentimes what's called community supported agriculture programs. These are local box, these are local food boxes or local farms that provide local produce boxes to you weekly or every other week. They provide fresh ingredients from the farm. It's generally a wide scale and a lot of people don't know how to cook anymore. When you don't know how to cook, what are you dependent upon? You're dependent upon other people. You're dependent upon restaurants. You're dependent upon fast food. Okay. So I encourage people to build that relationship with a farm, branch out from a food perspective and start to learn basic cooking things because it gets you into a greater food variety than what you're just usually accustomed to. Um, it doesn't take that long to learn how to cook. Um, try a new recipe every single week. I'm not going to hit you on this though. I 100% uh, agree. Cooking is amazing. Like putting on a podcast, yeah. you're chopping up your food, you yeah. get it. I didn't start doing this until the, the, the quarantine when it first hit Italy, mm -hmm. but it, it is like you're creating, you're making right. something and it feels so much better consuming that than going down to the corner store or going down to the, the local restaurant and whatnot. So that is a, a fulfilling thing, 100%. But right. it's hard to get into it. A lot of people don't it know is. any sort of recipes or whatnot. You got everything on YouTube. That's how Literally, I you can learn anything these days and cooking is super easy. But again, it comes back to that control thing. Like if you don't know how to cook and play with different types of food, well, you're going to stay in your same routine. So like me saying to go to a farm and try something, well, if you don't learn the basic skills of actually expanding that, which is why like families in Europe, what do they learn up growing? They learn up how to cook. Like that's the food culture. They're not dependent on others of learning how to cook. They know how to. Whereas in the U.S., I'm seeing it every day where not a lot of people actually know how to cook. And that limits what we can grow because what we grow, we sell. I would like to produce an even wider variety of things. Like we're going to produce probably 35 to 50 different varieties of vegetables on the farm. But I'd like to get to 85, 95, 100 because that diversity and variety is not only good for humans, but it's also good for the diversity of the ecosystem, okay? Um, diets, get me into those diets though. Let's, let's hit these diets quick. Practical action, mm -hmm. I love doing intermittent fasting. I feel like I'm mm -hmm. high mentally, physically, I feel wonderful on it. Um, it's harder in the US for some reason for me to, to get on it, but give me some sort of diets that someone can try now, you know what I mean? Now all these fad things. I mean, I don't really push, I don't push specific diets. So this is the funny part is we kind of like intermittent fasting works for, for some people it work. It doesn't work for others. So like somebody who intermittent fasts, they could fast one day for 12 hours. They could also fast another day for 18 hours. Okay. Um, the thing with intermittent fasting is once you start to feel hungry, you might as well eat because it starts to disrupt your actual thinking, your cognitive behavior, your body starts to shut down. Well, hold on, hold on. I find if I just beat that 10 o'clock urge, yeah. I, I get like a, another jolt of, of highness and I feel like I'm buzzing before I eat around 12.31. So it's very person dependent. So when I do nutrition coaching for people who have started intermittent fasting, the problem is, is they'll get to that noon and then they'll gorge. Yep. Um, I usually do that. They'll take a gorge. nap after. <laughs> they'll gorge. And what happens is when you gorge, your glucose goes way up. Okay. Okay. So your body's now on a homeostasis, it's freaking out, it's sending out insulin, it's trying to recover, well, it's in a freak out stage, okay? okay? So one of the issues that we see with intermittent fasting is that people can't then actually control their hunger or their eating. Um, and so intermittent fasting is not a bad thing, it's just learning how to use it. So like setting a strict 16 hours might not be the best thing for one person if at noon they're gorging. So like I've had some clients will fast from about nine o'clock at night until 10 and then they'll eat and they'll feel fine. They'll have a lighter meal and then they'll have their lunch. Um, well, this is one thing you brought up to me is uh, Americans overeating and I still do this. Like yeah. we, we really 
eat everything. We get these plates from yeah. the restaurant that are ginormous. Know what I mean, the, the, the portions are ridiculous. Why do we overeat and how can we stop overeating? So a simple trick is use a salad plate. So for all the meals you eat, get rid of your big main plates and use your salad plates. It forces you to eat smaller. Use chopsticks. It's simple. It sounds stupid, but it's simple. It forces you to eat slower. What we as Americans lack is actually understanding our hunger cues um, when we're full, when we're hungry, because one, we're stressed down as can be. We're always stressed as the American population. So stress actually, it suppresses our hunger, but because we're stressed, we view it as a craving that's going to satisfy our stressor. Well, it doesn't. It's just a vicious cycle. Okay. So a lot of it, a lot of the coaching I do is actually around bringing awareness to your hunger and fullness cues. Because if you don't do that, you're going to continually overeat. And that's one thing I did notice in Italy, maybe you did it in France, is maybe those uh, stress cues are, are suppressed with cigarettes. Probably. I mean, <laughs> I see that a lot. Maybe they don't use much, but okay. Well, I mean, they just, they eat less. Portions are a lot smaller. They eat slower. They enjoy it. That's a big thing. The families around, like you need to enjoy. You know, in America, and I noticed this when I've been home, is you know we make food and I'm on the couch. My father's over here. My mother's over there. We're on our phones. Like there's no like uh, beauty in uh, this this dinner, this uh, experience we're sharing together. And that and that's the thing is if you look at developing countries, you look at Europe. It doesn't really matter that community sense around food like this is a meal that we're going to sit down and enjoy like when you go and have in spain or italy when you've got your two-hour siesta and people are just kind of chilling well, what are you doing you're resetting the body you're resetting the mind like you're chilling out okay well in the u.s what do we do we go 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 and we never stop okay so that chronic stress that we put on ourselves as a society, well, that actually leads to the food behaviors that we're seeing today. What are some things that, instead of eating the the stress for the food that you tell your clients to do when they feel that stress? So, I'm also a breath coach, so I do a lot of breath work around. You like Hoff, Wim Hoff? Yeah, Wim Hoff, things like that. So, um, so there's two two simple ways. If you're hungry, Start by just breathing four seconds in, four seconds, six seconds out, looking outside. That'll actually reset your nervous system. You do that for about three to five minutes. It'll reset your entire central nervous system. And you'll actually know if you're stressed or if you're calm. Most of the time you're going to be stressed. Okay. The other one is start to write down what foods you eat when you're triggered by stress. When you do that, remove those foods because you know that if they're in the house, you're going to eat them. It doesn't really matter. Like if they are there, they're designed to be eaten. And if you're not aware of that, you're still going to eat them. So you have to start to figure out what's that awareness piece of, okay, when I'm stressed, I go to Oreos. So why would I buy Oreos the next time when I know it's a vicious cycle when I'm stressed, I eat Oreos. Now I feel like crap because I ate Oreos. Now I'm stressed again. So you start creating this vicious cycle if you're not actually aware of the things that trigger these things. How do you get aware? Just write down, you said? Any other you, tips? you have to start to write down, and then the breathing part of it too is a huge one, just kind of resetting. So four seconds in, six seconds out, um, will totally reset, will help you kind of think more clearly. You'll get into a more rest and digest state. Um, so your body will actually kick off, get out of that chronic stress state and activate that parasympathetic nervous system, which is that rest and digest. So your stomach goes, oh, I can actually start producing my stomach acid because when we're in chronic stress states, our body diverts all the attention to this critical organs. That's not to our stomach. Like if I'm running from a lion, I don't need my stomach to be digesting, okay? Um, Whereas if I'm sitting at work all day and I'm on my phone or I'm looking at emails, I'm in zoned in i'm stressed because vision we like to humans like to view panoramic with a computer or our phone we're zoned in like in the wild if it was a snake we're narrowed in but that's an acute stress if we're on our computer all day we're stressed out we don't even know it okay so there's a lot of signal cues from a physiological side that end up disrupting our hunger cues so there's a lot more that goes into this 
but that's a lot of the work that I do with the clients as well. How do I feel full without eating grains? I need to eat grains to feel full. Well, you should be eating carbohydrates. Okay. Well, there's no, there's nothing wrong with carbohydrates. The problem is in the U.S. we overeat processed carbohydrates. So things like bread from the grocery store that's been stripped of all of the seed shell or the holes. So they strip it, then they bleach it, and then they add and enrich stuff. Well, what did they do? They took out all the fiber. Well, that's the beneficial part of eating a grain. Okay. So processed processed grains are horrible for you. So cereals, things like that, whenever it's refined and processed, you don't want to eat it. So you're, so the things that you do want to eat are things like brown rice. You're talking like quinoa, you're talking rolled oats or steel cut oats, um, millet brand, things that just haven't been through a full processing. Um, because our body prefers getting energy from carbohydrates because our first energy is glucose, okay? We need glucose to survive because if we don't eat glucose, this is why you see people that go on keto, um, especially CrossFitters, they look shredded because what are they doing? They're not eating carbohydrates, okay? Um, when they're not eating carbohydrates, it's pulling down on the protein, the fat, so it looks, it makes them look more fit and shredded, but their body's actually falling apart. Mm. Okay, so our body would rather use energy from carbohydrates and that glucose rather than protein or fat because fat is our survival mechanism. Like if we're out in the wild and we're stranded, we have nothing to eat, our body will slowly enter in that ketosis state to pull fat, but that's only when it's necessary. The problem in the US is we overeat fat, like nut butters. We eat so much nut butter in this country, it blows my mind and it's just super high in fat. So what happens? You're having a really calorie dense food that's pretty low in protein, super high in fat. You're gonna put on more fat. Um, carbohydrates, we wanna be smart about those and protein, it's, then it's about smart protein choices. Uh, this would be a good question uh, for George. He loves this stuff. The <laughs> most best, wonderfulest superfood that you recommend right now that we can go buy that's not 100 dollars for you know a couple grams some superfood that is reasonable just find local food from your fresh farmer that's it's literally food that is picked that day no matter where you're from is going to be the most nutrient dense the superfoods what we the issue that we have with superfoods is we think oh the acai berry from brazil like if i don't have that like i'm not going to get all my antioxidants well guess what in minnesota blueberries raspberries and strawberries they're seasonal and they're super good. So like strawberry season, super good in Minnesota from mid-June to mid-July. Raspberries come right after that. Blueberries come in the fall. Well, you're getting berries throughout the season. That's a superfood right there. So figuring out what's fresh, what's seasonal, because that's gonna be the freshest source possible. What culture do you think eats the best? Most healthy diet. I mean, the Mediterranean people live the longest. They Mediterranean, say. typically, I mean, you've got a lot in southern India. You've got a lot in Indonesia, J Japanese, um, Japanese. I mean, that's you look anywhere where the where the food is diverse and the eating is slow. It's generally where you're going to have a healthier population. So. so trying to copy one of those diets is a decent idea or is it hard because you can't get those same It's things? hard because it's, it's hard to access it. And the issue is, is like seasonality. So like in, the, in Minnesota, so let's take Minnesota for example. A diet here, like a seasonal diet, say in the summer you'd be eating some fresh berries. You could have some fresh wild dandelion root, things like that. Wild game, rabbit, deer things like that. Whereas in say like Finland in the winter time, you're living off of fish, just trying to catch fish or wild game. Why? Because you need a lot of fat. You need a lot of that omega-3. You need the vitamin D. Um, whereas in like Tanzania, very different seasonal diet. So it's, I think the issue that we're coming to with food is that we're trying to project this Western diet of tomatoes and potatoes and all of this, when it's like there's so much root, nutrient dense food, no matter where you live. Um, it's just finding that food now is super hard because for me to go pick up a dandelion root and eat it in the US, 
I have to go to some lawn that hasn't been sprayed with all the chemicals to kill the dandelions. Um, so hold on, this is what I'm wondering though too. So do you have to research, okay, this is the geographical location I am. I'm gonna go talk to a local farmer, see what kind of best nutritions I can get. You said to do that, correct? Yep. But what happens if like, for me example, I think I feel the best when I'm on my Mediterranean diet, but if I'm not living in the Mediterranean, am I fucked or what do I do? No, you're fine. I mean, you can start to, I mean, you can find farmers, you can find people that are producing those foods. I mean, we've got grocery stores that have a lot of that food. Um, but I think the issue that we fall into is we think one diet fits all. Well, it doesn't. Like somebody could be way better at processing fats. Like we know looking geographically, like certain genetic traits of those in Japanese culture don't digest things as well as say somebody in a different culture. Why? Because we grew up in different regions. We grew up diff surviving in different ways. Yeah. So the Maasai in Tanzania, what do they eat? Cow's blood? They have some little um, flowers and plants and things like that, but a lot of it's literally cow's blood. Like that's where they get a lot of their nutrition. So, from. so what do I do? A genetics test and go ask someone to find me the perfect no. diet? No. What do <laughs> that's not what I'm getting at. What okay. I'm getting at is for us to say, okay, the Mediterranean diet's the best diet. Well, I can't say that because we know that populations are surviving on so many different types of diets. Yeah. Okay. So it's figuring out what works best for you and given where you live, okay? So yep. for you, like... You yeah, so can, how do I do this? Tell me how I so do So you can technically access a Mediterranean diet in Prior Lake. Okay. Most of that food exists in the grocery store. A lot of that food exists with local farms. Like there's, there's a lot of synergy there. With say more Japanese style eating, you're gonna find your ramen, you're gonna find your Kobe beef, you're gonna find your daikon radishes, things like that. Um, in grocery stores, some farmers are growing them. A lot of it just takes researching to figure out where all this food is coming yeah, this, from. This is, this is what I'm asking though. Like, yeah. what, how do I uh, research, or do I t try a bunch of different um, styles of food to figure out what feels best? Or is there a way I can plug in my genetics on some website or someone like you and you're gonna pick out what kind of diet I should aim towards? I mean, technically, yes, you could do some sort of genetics. I mean, I've never gotten that deep into that part of it. Um, but like if something like if a specific food is making you feel constipated or bloated, it's probably not good for you. The other thing, too, is depending on what food you're eating, like you could have a complete issue with your gut. So Americans typically have gut issues, which means we have a disproportionate amount of bad gut bacteria that when we eat, say, like fermented foods, which are supposed to be good for us, it actually causes greater problems. Why? Because we have certain microbes that are more prevalent that should have been suppressed by other things in our gut. Okay. So for me to say like, okay, it, and this is what, this is the frustrating part for a lot of people is it is, it's a lot of trial and error. Okay. Like it's taken me four or five years to figure out where I feel best. Okay, like I don't eat red meat anymore. I don't eat chicken meat. What I, I just reintroduced liver into my diet. Why? Because liver is the most nutrient dense food on the entire planet. Like if you have access to liver, I would eat it. And you only have to eat an ounce or two ounces a day. It doesn't contain all the fat that a regular piece of red meat does, but it has 300 times more vitamins and minerals. So trial and error. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it is. Uh, my next question here, let me get the little video camera going for this. Your top, your top supplements that you recommend or do you even recommend supplements? Uh, most Americans are deficient in magnesium and vitamin D. Yeah, big time. Um, typically deficient in zinc and typically deficient in vitamin B12. Um, vitamin B12 isn't as profound in say factory grown animals as it is in grass fed liver is super high in vitamin b12 magnesium we typically the issue with magnesium is a lot of magnesium comes from the soil um, for plants to be able to uptake it well when we strip our topsoil we don't have the magnesium vitamin d we typically don't get outside as americans we don't eat foods that are high in vitamin d um, 
And so, like, say in Minnesota in the winter, no sun. Time, yeah, you need vitamin D. There's not a lot of sun. Well, what did we do? We ate a lot of fish, omega threes, vitamin Ds. That was seasonal. Okay. Well, we don't do that as much anymore. Um, we don't eat a true seasonal diet. Um, and so, typically, people will supplement with vitamin D. Um, but magnesium is a big one that I would say supplement. The, we have some problems, though, with these supplement companies. There are a lot of them BS. Uh, yeah. Do you recommend any good brands? I have a great brand. and get 15% off. Use Cold Bold 15. Double Wood Supplements. That's what I take. Uh, Tonga Ali. I get a, a nice, hard morning wood from that. So check it out. Um, Thorn is a good one in the U.S. And then there's a few others that I can send you. Send it to me. So. Okay. The Spring Lake Farm. What is the end goal? I know you just did a partnership with the uh, the schools yep. nearby. I mean, what is what is your plan on this? Are you just trying to save the world by food, or what's going on? No. So I mean, this small farm isn't going to save the world. Um, <laughs> the big thing was is if you look at Prairie Lake, there's no farm that's really close. Um, there's a few that are probably 15, 20 minutes away. But there's no farm that's right there. And the, the problem is, is when you have a disconnect between farms and people, you have a disconnect between the food system and policies and people. Okay, So when that happens, you don't have an educated population. You have kids growing up thinking food grows in the grocery store. Okay, well, that's a huge problem because once you disassociate food from the environment, we're more likely to destroy the environment. So all of these come into play. So the farm, yes, it's there designed to produce food, but larger, I want it to be used as an actual community center to actually help people become educated on food practices, the importance of small scale agriculture, the importance of growing practices, healthy eating, um, kind of a more holistic learning center. And there, I mean, it starts not just with adult populations, with, but with kids, okay? Because when we have kids who are much more educated on our food system at a younger age, like a kid who pulls a carrot out of the ground and eats it themselves is much more likely to continue eating that carrot than if it just came out of the grocery store. The number of studies that have been done on this are profound and it's actually quite striking that those who produce their own food or have access to picking their own food are more likely to eat healthier. Okay, so if you take that away and you say, okay, convenience grocery store, you take the food thing out of somebody's mind, out of sight, out of mind, they're not going to care. So the farm is there as an actual avenue for people to see how stuff is grown, what food there is, cooking, all the different resources to help a person develop better eating habits and really start to reassociate food with farms and where it comes like from. Like create relationships with Correct. food. That's your goal. Yep. So you're going to be doing like a YouTube content stuff or classes? Yeah, so a lot of it's going to be in-person classes um, geared towards the community. We've already started doing some of them. Um, I'm doing kind of joint breath work with food work as well, nutrition work as well. Um, the schools, that's the initial step. The goal is to hopefully get more programming with the schools to bring them out to the farm because we're so close to actually have kids see how it's grown, have days out there, really start to associate what they're eating with the farm. So that, I mean, YouTube, I might eventually get into it. I might kind of start more of my own little page just talking larger policies and things like that. But like the farm itself is more for a community perspective, but I will post a lot of that stuff on Instagram, Facebook, things like that. Uh, how do you get someone to be passionate and get that relationship with food? I mean, for me, it, it helped a lot being in Italy because yep. the culture was that. But for America, you know, our culture is not that. So how do I fall in love with food, you know, in America? I assume when you start eating and start making, you start feeling better. It creates that relationship. But I mean, how can someone listen to this right now develop their relationship with food. So think about it, where you, you started appreciating it through an experience, okay? So you had the experience of going to Italy, tasting and feeling the difference. So not only did you have an experience, you tasted a difference and then you felt the difference, okay? So for most people, we don't enter into these areas of whether it's holistic health or whether it's food, it doesn't really matter until something happens, okay? There's an event that happens. So for me to just tell somebody on the street, 
hey, you should care about my farm and you should eat there. Why would they care? Okay. There has to be something they associate that with. So for some people, it could be like what I'm seeing with some of the clients I'm working with more middle aged population is they've gone through the entire medical system and have never found a cure for their chronic pain. Okay. Well, once we start digging into it and once some of the health practitioners I work with start digging into it, a lot of it comes back to the environment and the food in which these people are in. So they've kind of gone through this whole system, had no help. And now where are they? They're finally reverting back to the simplicity of holistic food, holistic medicine, all of that. So it really takes people to be in that mindset for it to happen because I can't just force it on you. Um, it usually happens through an experience or through a feel like what you had. Can you explain to me these green things over here you brought? Oh, the microgreens? This is what you got into the schools, correct? Yeah. So microgreens are the initial shoots of plants. So this would eventually become a radish. This little thing would eventually become a radish. And this would eventually become a snap pea plant. Okay. So what microgreens are and sprouts in general are the baby versions of plants. So you have sprouts, you've got microgreens, you've got baby, and then you've got mature. Well, what we're finding is that microgreens are actually anywhere between nine to 12 times more nutrient dense than the mature plant on a per gram basis. So hundred grams of like broccoli microgreens is going to be much more nutrient dense than a full head of broccoli. One of the reasons is, is because that seed, that plant has to have all the nutrients it needs in that seed before it develops a root system, be able to uptake nutrients from the ground. Okay. okay. So for that to happen, that seed has to be super nutrient dense. So if you look at native populations, if you look at indigenous populations, what do we eat a lot of seeds? Why? Super nutrient dense, super low calorie. Okay. Same thing with microgreens, super nutrient dense, super low calorie, provide an enormous amount of health benefits. And so them along with liver are really great options for getting a lot of nutrients in a small amount where we're not overeating. We're not having to constantly eat stuff. Um, and so this is great for the school because it's easy to throw on everything. Like you can throw these things on anything. You can eat them plain. I throw them on tacos, I throw them on egg dishes, I throw them in salads. Um, super easy, like just super easy to consume. How hard was that to get into the schools? Is there like a blockage or getting healthy food in there? Because I remember eating school food and a lot of it was shit. Yeah, so what's nice is that the, the team of nutrition over at the school district in Prior Lake, they've done a phenomenal job the last few years of really getting the farm to school movement going in Prior Lake. Um, they've gotten a lot of grants from the state and other things to help make all of that affordable, um, which is awesome because like you said, like when we were growing up here, the food sucked. It was literally like fried chicken burgers. It was cookies. It was potatoes and gravy that looked like crap. Um, whereas now the options are much better. Um, and a lot of it is because of the work that they've done. So they've done a really good job sourcing from local farms, finding the local farms, building those relationships. And what's nice is like moving back to my hometown, Prior Lake, like I've had those connections. So it's much easier for me to build those connections. Um, and the fact that the school wanted it, that's the big thing is the school has to want it. Um, and they did, so. And the plan is to use this as a springboard to move into other places in Minnesota? I mean, that would be the goal. I mean, there's, there's only so much we can grow over there, but I think you can start to create it as a model for others to do this and say like, this is the difference that we're having in the schools because if kids are gonna eat crap all day, they're gonna feel like crap and have um, attention issues. Amazing, okay, so Spring Lake Farm is located in Prior Lake. They, you come to classes, get your food. Can you pitch like, where do you go? Where, where do you get the food? Like what, and you have online stuff too, correct? Yeah, so right now our sales channels are either uh, farmer's markets or the farm store in Prior Lake. Um, the online ordering will eventually happen 
but that won't be until the busy farm season hits. So, but yeah, I mean, we're just located in Prior Lake. And if you are in the area, we are right near, right on Panama, right near kind of Lunds and Byerly's, which is great because we're not too far from a grocery store. Um, but yeah, super easy. Uh, I set up right now either uh, messaging through me for the microgreens and then eventually it'll be the full farm season. So, and then for our global listeners, are you available for, um, uh, consulting on the health and the diets and whatnot? Do you do that? Yeah. So I do coaching for both nutrition and I do coaching for breath work. So actually helping you get into a parasympathetic rest and digest state, get you out of chronic fatigue, chronic stress states, um really huge if you have any questions feel free to reach out i do free consultations to start um but yeah do it on zoom and send individual programming things like that so amazing any final last words uh to get your message out biggest piece of advice support the local farms support community food and community are tied together that's what you see in italy that's what you see in developing countries Food and community are tied together. Food, community, and health are all tied together. So we have to help support our local food systems if we want greater, stronger communities. Amazing. Eat bold and live bold. Ciao, ciao.